I'm Betsy Reed, and this is The Discomfort Practice, where I talk to creatives, activists, leaders, scientists, and a host of others about discomfort, about the role it's played in their lives, who they are and what they do in the world, and the value of discomfort in helping us move forward as a society. Discomfort is just the edge of your comfort zone, and on the other side are superpowers. So settle yourself in, and let's get uncomfortable. Well, welcome. I cannot tell you how happy I am to have pressed record and have it be apparently recording. And I'm I'm looking at the screen because I'm just going to let you in on a little intel about this episode. This is our third time attempting to record. So you're about to meet the most gracious guest on the face of the earth because this is literally the third week in a row we have done <laughs> this chat. I do love talking to you though. So so we're so we're good. I'm just looking at the bars on this, just checking that I do actually have some audio. So there you go. Behind the scenes already, before I even interview, before I even introduce my guests here, but you're about to meet a really amazing and gracious person who I actually know personally, but who is also going to be an amazing guest. And we know this because we've basically rehearsed this chat twice already. So <laughs> oh the the world of podcasting, where you get to be super duper honest. Anyway, I'm going to go ahead and introduce Hannah Von Jones. So on top of being a truly gracious and wonderful human being, Hannah is an Emmy-nominated journalist, broadcaster, and moderator. She's anchored primetime, breaking television news for CNN, International, and Sky News. She's probably very tired of hearing this biography because she's heard it a few times. Never, never tire of it. This is gorgeous. Keep she is going. a presenter. So she's like, bring it on. Oh, stop, stop. So <laughs> Hannah has presented live programming from Windsor, UK for the 2018 Royal Wedding and her coverage of the Manchester concert atrocity in concert bombing atrocity in 2017 earned her and her CNN colleagues critical acclaim. Hannah regularly works as an event host and moderator for clients spanning issues like global health, sustainable investment, gender equality, and international development. She holds a bachelor's degree in politics and has covered and provided commentary on U.S. elections, which was, of course, interesting working for CNN during the Trump years, Brexit, and multiple U.K. general elections over the last 15 years. Hannah was born and raised in Bristol in the west of England and is proudly Welsh by marriage. And I always make the comment, now we know, it makes it tough to talk about rugby because we know the other side of the family is French. So you just don't talk about international sporting events with the family. It's true. We've got like English, Welsh, French. It's just come Six Nations. If anyone who's listening to this knows what Rugby Six Nations is all about, it's um, it's slightly um, traumatic. <laughs> messy, 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 very yeah. personal. Yeah. Well, you know, I just go with Allez les Bleus. <laughs> when yeah. given the chance, go for the French. Well, okay. So Han's also a keen runner and yogi and is a regular cast member in musical theater productions, and is the auntie of two of my godchildren. So that's how we know each other. Hooray! Hmm, who I will see in a couple of weeks, Lord willing, if I can get to France on the train. Oh, I'm beyond so. jealous of that. I've, I've just had my first vaccination, and I'm hoping to bring forward the second so that I can also fight my way into France to see much longer relatives <laughs> and much missed relatives. Oh, yeah, you're definitely getting real world behind the scenes take three interview biography here. So yeah, <laughs> let's get to the other stuff that's impressive about you, Han. She's recently taken on the role of senior advisor to an outfit called BB Partners, which is an innovative communications advisory for change makers. 
She writes and is a long-standing fertility advocate who has shared openly her own journey with IVF before the birth of her son, Sonny. And this is going to comprise a large bulk of this conversation because it is something she's passionate about, quite articulate about, and I have received quite a few questions from listeners who are going through IVF or might be about to go through IVF and are just longing for support and insight because it's such an unknown for so many people. She and her husband, Lewis, who's also a fellow journalist, documented their IVF treatment in a widely watched YouTube series called Our IVF Diary. You can find that on YouTube. It's it's quite heartrending at moments. I watched it myself in real time. And a previous guest on this podcast mentioned to me, they asked, could you interview somebody about IVF? And I knew exactly who I wanted to talk to because it's obviously a subject that's super common. A lot of people go through and is stressful and lonely and isolating, and there just isn't a lot of information about it. So we'll be covering that today, along with things like what it's like to be a woman in the media, what it's like to be part of a a media power couple, let's call (laughs) you, Uh, and then some of the issues you care about, gender equity, um, development, international health issues, that everything kind of revolves around our general theme of discomfort here. Mm -hmm. So welcome, Hannah. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's lovely to be um, here to be back (laughs) and um, I hope that I can provide I hope I can just improve each time we do this and actually you know just offer offer a little bit more because I mean one of the main things that we talked about in the past which we you know we shouldn't really linger on too much because (laughs) no one else gets to listen to it Um, but is that kind of my overall discomfort being uh, a feeling of failure which I know we'll get into oh yeah and we have failed spectacularly so far. Yeah. <laughs> we produced oh, yeah. this episode. So um so fingers crossed. Um uh, once we have completed this and had a really good chinwag again, um, and everyone else can actually hear it, then there will be a wonderful sense of achievement, which is yeah. what it's all about. Fail hard, fail often, isn't that? Fail hard, fail. Well, it is interesting because that was sort of that has been a feature of our chat since the beginning. So Hannah's a repeat guest, you just don't know this because <laughs> the two other episodes we recorded did not work. I spilled water on my laptop the first time uh, ahead of it, and you couldn't hear me on my end of the recording. Last one, for some reason, the platform I use to record this just didn't. So even their tech support were scrambling, being like, we don't know how this happened. So you're taking so, all the blame for this, but I should say that, you know, I've, I've had 20 years in television <laughs> and in, you know, broadcasting, and I've got a feeling it, the problem may have come from my end because I know you've recorded several other <sighs> episodes with other people and it's been absolutely fine. So thank you for tech. taking the fault, the, the flat for all of this, but I, I have a feeling okay. it might be my end. Anyway. Okay, so this is this is overachievers um, trying to power struggle to take the blame. So I'll take the blame for the first episode not working, and you can take the blame for the last one. And this one's going to work. Yeah, I'll take the blame for the content as well if the content's yeah. rubbish. Nah, nah, you know. Well, as a journalist, you know the interviewer is a big part of the content. So here we go into uh, hopefully take three, having failed twice, two overachievers who are just like bloody hell. Let's just get this interview out of the way. A media professional, two media professionals. Essentially, here we are. 
in discomfort. Can you feel it, people? Can you feel it? We're both just looking a little disgusted on camera here. Like, all right, move you know on. What? The first time as well, I kind of like, I was all, I, I always think when you're presenting or working or something like that, you, I kind of dress from the toe up. So I, you know, had heels on and, and had washed my hair and everything. I've just come back from a run today and I am a sweaty mess. <laughs> I've <just laughs> shoveled a load of lunch into my mouth. <laughs> and, um, so I'm sorry if I, kind of and I've got my legs up on the desk and I'm kind of I'm I'm all relaxed I mean I, I'll probably be far more um you know fluent and kind of um I don't know fluid than I normally we'll would get be. a different side of Hannah Von Jones than the I'm wearing heels while sitting in my own home doing a podcast interview <laughs> yeah this is cool I think we might get a different side because yeah we've we've rehearsed it a couple times and they've always been good chats so here we go people are like Get on with it. Just get on with it. Okay. okay let's go. We're getting on with it. So you know the first question. Yes. What's an uncomfortable moment that shaped who you are and how you show up in the world? So I have two uh, versions of this uncomfortable moment that I'd like to share with people. So on a... Um, on the personal side, which very much plays into IVF and infertility, which we'll no doubt talk a lot more about as well, then I would say um, an uncomfortable moment was the first the first time and then the following kind of like 100 times when you have to essentially lie down on a bench in front of a stranger, often a man, and spread your legs and let him uh, place a condom over a dildo wand and then shove it up you. And it, it's just so unceremoniously done. It's just a kind of like, right, lie down and put this piece of tiny, this tiny little, I think they call it a towel. It's, it's literally um, a paper napkin. It's tiny. Um, you, you sort of place that over you um, to, to protect your dignity, if ever <laughs> there was such a thing. Um, and, and then obviously the, the, the investigations get, are underway. Um, that happened to, has happened to me not just through, you know, smear tests and all the sort of the usual standard thing that women um, undergo. But I through infertility, I've probably had that experience, I would say at least 300 times. Um, oh. Because it's just such a frequent thing. And at first, it was it felt very kind of undignified. And after a while, you just sort of don't care. And there's something quite liberating about that, because you can find the humour in these kind of what would normally be kind of maybe embarrassing or awkward, uncomfortable uh experiences and you instead you just find the humor in it uh, so i would say that was one way one kind of like discomfort practice or <laughs> an uncomfortable experience that i experienced on repeat that then helped me kind of shed my not ego but any vanity or anything like that it, it, you just let go of it because it mm -hmm. doesn't matter the ultimate you know the the goal here is to become a parent, to have a child in my case. And so whatever it takes to get to that stage. And also in the midst of all of my sort of fertility treatments, I also experienced seeing very close, uh, one in particular very close friend who was going through cancer. She passed away just before my son, a year before Sonny was born. Mm. And the, the sort of the indignity, if you like, of going through medical treatment of that's of a life changing or life threatening variety, as opposed to the sort of life altering medical treatment that I was undergoing, um, was it was just really inspiring to me, and I just thought I can't believe that I've ever been 
upset or worried or embarrassed or anything about any kind of medical procedure or talking about your body parts and you know your gynecologically you should we should just as men women be able to talk about everything freely um mm-hmm. and seeing someone else go through that uh, for you know life changing reasons was really empowering for me and i obviously miss her terribly as well and she was a huge inspiration on, so that would be my personal example. On the professional side of things, um, one moment that really sticks out in my mind was back in 2018, I was hosting the Malaria Summit on the sidelines of the uh, Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting. And, you know, a huge, big, big summit. There's about, I don't know, a thousand delegates in the audience. And I'm on stage with Prince Charles, um, the Duke of York, Prince Andrew uh, with Bill Gates, who was, you know, of the Gates Foundation and of Microsoft and of soon to be the biggest divorce ever, um, <laughs> you know, all on stage. There's probably about 15 of us in, uh, all together, thought leaders, youth leaders, all sorts, wow. and me. And so for most people in that position, you'd feel like I'm the, I'm the one person, even though I'm the host, as it were, I'm the one person who doesn't really... Uh, belong on that stage and that I'm not really offering anything to the narrative of what we're all trying to gain here. And the the moment in, that comes to mind in particular was when Bill Gates was supposed to open out the palm of his hand and a drone was due to land on his hand and then take off and then take a photograph of all of these dignitaries on stage. And of course, he didn't want to do it because, of course, it wasn't going to work. And sure enough, it didn't work. The drone did not take off. So all of these very super powerful, important people are kind of standing around feeling a bit awkward. And all of their team, their entourages are kind of panicking around the sides of the stage. And I just had to sort of hold, just just hold the room, essentially. And it, for, for me, at that time, there was a feeling of, oh, my God, please just let the stage swallow me up. This is hideous. Um, but I instantly kind of went into performance mode and just thought, this is a wonderfully leveling, grounding experience because it doesn't matter who you are. We're all just human beings mm-hmm. and technology fails, as we've experienced. <laughs> Boy, have we. Um, and it was just a really nice moment of like, this is so awkward from a professional point of view. I've never been in this position before, but I'm going to grow out of it. And that has totally changed how I show up, I suppose, in, in the world with with friends, with family, uh, with work colleagues. Essentially, it's that feeling of I belong on that stage just as much as anyone else. Um you know, if I've been invited to be there, it's because I have something to offer. And if I don't have anything to offer, then I shouldn't put myself in that position of being on the stage in the first place, you know. But it's just like I have I have just as much value in my being a human as the next person, as Bill Gates, as Prince Charles, as whoever else. And that was something that was um, very empowering as well going forward. Mm, so both of those things are kind of about being able to let go of that really tough facade of being perfect, of having to maintain that really difficult facade of always having to be perfect because you've always right. been a high achiever, right? Always. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's something that, um, you know, a lot of people might listen to this and go, oh, you know, woe is her. You know, she's always done well. Uh, but I, it's, it's quite a weird 
burden in a strange way to bear. If you, you know, as in my case, from all the way through school, from childhood, I was always just a good all rounder. I never really excelled at any one thing. But I was always good at sport. I was good in at my in my lessons. I was, you know, popular. Had lots of friends. Um, I just never really had a major struggle with that kind of first kind of childhood or growing up or becoming a woman kind of thing. And it's it's something that it really hits you really hard when suddenly you find something that you can't do that you. In having children, in my case, becoming a mother seemed like the most natural milestone that you know everyone around me was hitting and reaching successfully. It was just par for the course. And so when I got to that stage, when I you know met the man I wanted to spend the rest of my life with, and we decided that we wanted to have a family, um, it was just an assumption that that would work. And when it didn't, it was it was hugely embarrassing and I needed to sort of keep it all to myself because I just thought I can't tell anyone until I have succeeded because at the moment I'm a failure and no one expects that of me everyone thinks of Hannah Tallett is my maiden name everyone thinks of Hannah Tallett as a success she does well she's good and to suddenly admit I can't do this I'm I'm bad I've I've done something wrong or uh, it, it was really uh, shameful to me, um, and so that was, yeah, it, the, the, that feeling of failure is um, has definitely shaped everything that I that I do now. As I think it's you know a common theme for so many people now. It's you know that thing about yeah failing hard, failing often because you learn most from that. But I had never experienced that until you know my thirties, so it was uh. a hard, hard lesson to learn. <laughs> And I suppose, and this comes from my personal experience of, as I've become, as I've finally learned to become kinder to myself, I'm very different to others in the world. Mm. I'm less harsh. I'm, I see the funniness in a lot of things. You know, I fall on my face and laugh and you're there, you know, with the dildo wand up you for time number 245, (laughs) just finding the humor in it. Do you feel like that has actually really changed how you are to others because you've had to learn to be kinder to yourself or it would have broken you? Absolutely. I think that there's as much as we all try and say that we, you know, you don't judge a book by its cover and all that sort of stuff, or you don't really know what's going on behind closed doors. All those things are true. And I would probably have said those things out loud and certainly to myself in conversations with friends over the years, but I hadn't really, really understood it, I suppose, or really lived it until I lived it. You know, no one knew what was going on with me um, and Lewis. And because we didn't tell anyone and because there's no, you know, infertility has no obvious um, physical, obvious physical scars, unless you show someone your bruised stomach or whatever it is from injection marks. But there's nothing completely obvious about it, Um, as is the case with lots of medical conditions, especially when it comes to mental health, of course. And that's an infertility very much falls under that that bracket in many ways. So um, having experienced something that was so profound to me and made me kind of reassess how I felt about myself, how I saw myself, whether I was a failure, whether I was a success, could I learn from this? Did I just have to accept that I wasn't as good as I thought I was or should have been or was supposed to be? Um, It certainly helped me then to see in other people where there's where where other people are struggling, and I think as an interviewer uh, in my professional life, then that's always been 
really, really important, a really important skill that is so often overlooked. It's, you know, an interviewer, yes, you have to ask the clever questions, but often the clever question is actually the shortest, most succinct, simple question with, as you, you basically say, as little as possible. And you just allow the person you're interviewing to reveal something about themselves or reveal something about whatever it is they're, they're talking about and use their own words. And the more you can listen that actually, you know, without interrupting, then actually you gain more out of the experience. So I hope it's made me a better journalist and a better friend. Yeah, definitely. Because it's, we perfectionists can be really hard people to be around. And I look back at versions of myself and think, wow, I could have been a much kinder partner. I could have been a much kinder friend because I was just beating the shit out of myself for not being perfect in little ways that I now have totally let go and think, oh, that's silly. That's just human. But yeah, it's a beautiful insight into probably a lot of people listening to this can relate of when you're used to being good at things and then suddenly something you thought was just going to come naturally and that you even had control over maybe, you totally do not. Let's just dive into the IVF chat. And the other two versions we've done, we've gotten to this last, but let's do it because you had somewhere between 15, 17, around there, rounds of IVF, depending on how you count it up. And that is a lot of hormones, a lot of process, a lot of examinations, a lot of emotion, a lot of stress. So yeah, I guess just plunge into that and, and why you decided to share it at the point you did? It was a big um, learning curve in lots of ways. A, I didn't know anything about the science behind it. And I knew so little about biology, basic biology that we just as well, I certainly wasn't taught in school in the you know 90s or anything like that. And it absolutely should be on the curriculum for all boys and girls um, to learn about how uh, your fertile cycle for men and women, just how it works. Uh, so it was a it was a learning curve in that sense, but it was more than that. It was a, in hindsight, I can say a big learning curve in terms of how I felt about myself, how I saw myself. So having always sort of uh, been quite institutionalized, I suppose you know you go to school and then you go to university and then you get married and then you'll have kids. You know th- these kind of big life milestones that you're. well that I expected to hit at various you know in the various decades of my life um I'd never really had to kind of reflect too much on who I really am and how I feel about myself and what my instincts are and what my gut reaction is to to things so going through IVF and infertility was really revealing because I um I had a very difficult and adverse reaction to seeing other people pregnant, for example. And that could be really close friends. It could be really, really close family. And it wasn't, uh, it, to me, it was shocking at first. I was really disgusted with myself. And I withdrew then from that particular relationship because I didn't want to, because I was so ashamed of how I felt. I mean, how can you not be happy for someone you love when they're going through something so wonderful? And it, it took me a long time to realize that, no, I'm, I'm, I wasn't a bad person. I was just in a bad place. And I needed to just be a bit kinder to myself because it wasn't a reflection of how I felt about that person. It was more of a reflection of how I felt about me. And I'd never had that kind of conversation or thought process ever with myself. Um, and also, you know, in turn, then you have to go through that with your partner as well, if you're if you're going through fertility treatment with a partner. 
because you know you have to communicate so much and so it, it's a real test on a relationship um how you see yourself how you think your partner sees you and then whether you still fit together in the pieces of your own jigsaw puzzle as a result of all of that and all of these things which i just never contemplated having to go through it at any point and when we said our wedding vows of you know the kind of through sickness and health and all that sort of stuff we meant it all and we still i hope mean it all but uh it 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 hit us earlier and in a completely unexpected way so i'd, I'd say the whole the, the ivf thing for me as much as it was of course all about having a family and and um getting pregnant and having a healthy baby it was also about just rediscovering or understanding for the first time what i'm all about mm. and then you decided to do the youtube series why yeah well i i i as i said before we kept everything very much to ourselves for the first probably the first 2 years of trying to conceive and then the the, the sort of the initial stages of infertility treatment because um being on this kind of like success trajectory my view was that and i think lewis uh, would would think the same was that we had heard about ivf and you i'd never heard of anyone who'd gone through ivf and it had failed i mean ultimately even if they'd had to go through three or four rounds of treatment ultimately these people ended up with a baby probably twins or triplets or something wonderful and so i just thought this is just a part of our success story i keep this to myself we go through the ivf we'll do it all quietly all privately and then we'll announce to family and friends and who knows in hello magazine or whatever it is that da da you know here we are we have this secret private struggle but just like everyone else we here's our here's our miracle bump and baby and uh, soon quite well quite quickly or early on in the IVF process we, I, it dawned on me that this doesn't always work um, and I, I just had not ever conceived of that before um, and we like I said we hadn't ever heard those stories of like of people who had done IVF and it they were still doing it or they just didn't know how it was going to pan out so it was the only way that I felt comfortable coming out to friends was by being really, really um, open and honest about it and just saying, we're still trying. This is still hell. Sorry, I haven't told you about it before. I felt too embarrassed and I didn't want to burden you with it. And I really thought that we would have nailed it by now and got it right. And we would have, you know, we would have had a happy ending, but I don't know what the happy ending is. And so I need to just broadcast this essentially we're both broadcasters we're both storytellers um, and journalists by nature by profession and we decided to do the youtube diary because it gave us some control of a situation that was completely out of our control we're not scientists we're not embryologists or gynecologists um you know i was being poked and prodded and lewis was doing all sorts of samples in dodgy dirty rooms and well not, not <laughs> you know what i mean um yeah and and it was just a bit like normal life was kind of slipping out slipping away from us and if we could just create something that meant um we could explain our withdrawal from society or from certain relationships to the world and to those particular people um it would give us 
yeah, some some uh, creative control over the over the situation. So that's why we did the YouTube diary, and I wrote various articles as well for um, national newspapers in the UK, and and it got quite a lot of pickup because, as it turns out, little did we know, but there were actually thousands and thousands and thousands of people in the UK alone who were in the exact same situation as us in that they were doing you know undergoing fertility treatment with absolutely zero idea of how, of whether it was going to work a lot of hope but also a hell of a lot of despair along the way and uh, and rapidly depleting funds as well because it costs so much money mm. to have this treatment yeah and you i love that this has become such a great chat about failure because you did it not knowing if you were ever going to succeed at it and that is for somebody who's always been good at things quite a big thing was it a relief to be able to share this then to open up and and yeah. be able to tell friends and family in the world definitely and also because i was still navigating in my head uh, if this doesn't work how do i how do i still live a fulfilling successful life and i was fortunate to have a you know my career so there was always that to sort of focus on but I was in in the back of my mind, which everyone has to go through when they suffer any kind of infertility, is that possibility that maybe you'll be, I mean, childless is is of such a negative connotation, yeah. but you know, without children, a life without children or childless by choice or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. And um and I didn't know what that looked like. So I think by by sharing it, it was enabling me to kind of like um, work out other possible routes because I've always been such a doer. Lewis is the thinker in our relationship and I'm the doer. It's just the way we operate. And so I was constantly like, well, well, let's just go straight into another round. I'm not having any breaks. I don't want to go on holiday and I don't want to, I just don't want to do anything other than just keep going, keep going, keep going. And um it just got to that point where I just thought maybe actually we need to think about the surrogacy if that's if that's an option for us or donor conception, uh, which was very much where we'd got to after 15 rounds of treatment or 14 rounds of treatment. We had, you know, my egg supply was rapidly kind of like running out. My body was wrecked from, you know, all of those, that horm- hormone treatment for so many years and life had been on pause for us for six, seven years. And it was just like, you know, we mm-hmm. have to have we have to have a life together that's worth living. And we have to have things to look forward to. And we both agreed that the only thing in our control was that decision of like, are we going to be parents or not? Which sounds ridiculous because an IVF you don't know. But you can still make the decision that you're going to be a parent if that's what you want, because there are lots of ways that you, that one can become a parent these days. So we had actually decided towards the very end of the treatment, uh, of all of our treatment, that we were going to use up all of the, you know, try and transfer all the embryos that we had left. Um, but we would... Um, go down the donor conception route and we were going to go abroad and create beautiful Spanish babies <laughs> from someone else's, someone else's genes or two other people's genes. Um, and we were really excited about it. It was, it felt like a, a decision that we had some control over that, that, that felt like there was a, a good conclusion to our story, having been kind of bereft of any kind of conclusion for so long. 
Um, and then we, a stroke of luck, maybe it was because we'd had that mental shift or not. I don't know. But then our last embryo worked r- remarkably. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's now a natter at 18 months running around all over the place. Because <laughs> <laughs> it is incredible. And you did sort of get your miracle baby. But the mm. the story of getting there is so valuable because, I mean, this is what people have sent in questions about. Right. And that is how hard it is and how mentally isolating it is and how people don't really talk about it. And that makes it even worse. It's like mental health issues Mm -hmm. and is often such an impact on a mental health issue. Yeah. Well, I think when people say people don't talk about it, my experience now is that people do talk about it. I think I found Mm -hmm. on social media and and just generally in the press, there's there's a lot of talk about it now. It just maybe in the last couple of years. The problem is that, like any illness, no one case completely mirrors another. So I'm someone who uh, really suffers from that kind of comparison complex. And I'm always looking for, you know, looking at someone else's life and thinking, oh, maybe I should be, I don't know, maybe I should have that or, you know, be mm-hmm. doing that. or and, and with IVF or with any kind of fertility treatment, there will never be an exact mirror of your particular case that you'll find in some kind of like, you know, forum, online forum at three o'clock in the morning when you're trying to find someone with the exact same graded embryos as you or the exact same kind of endometriosis or polycystic ovarian syndrome or whatever it might be. You'll find lots of kind of similarities out there, but essentially it's just these desperate desperate, vulnerable, hormonal women who go online because you are clinging to any bit of hope um, that you can find. And I did it. And I'm, you know, hopefully most of the time a relatively sane, sensible, rational person. Um, But in those moments when you have to wait, and there's a lot of waiting with IVF, a hell of a lot of waiting, and Mm. absolutely no way that you can control or or improve your chances or anything like that. And all you do is kind of cling on to all of these, um, you know, stories of hope that you find online. And it's, I personally think it's like that sort of Dr. Google thing. It's so, um, oh God, yeah, it's just so detrimental to anyone's health. You know, you, you, maybe you'll find something that you find positive in it, but it's, um, yeah, it just, it didn't do anything for me. And, and I think that's the hardest thing is, there's almost too much chatter about it, I suppose, is what I'm mm. to your initial point of no one really talks about it. I would say actually a lot of people talk about it, um, but it doesn't mean anything to you because there will be different. Oh, that leads perfectly on to, yeah, when somebody's going through this, what advice would you give them? Besides, it's hard, but you, nobody else has your experience. The, the main bit of advice that I would give anyone um, who's maybe got a loved one who's going through it is just to be there for them and to listen mm. and don't offer any advice essentially I had a, a quite a few experiences of um, colleagues and acquaintances friends who really pushed on me their miracle doctor they said oh you must go and see this person or you must go and have acupuncture with this person and they do this kind of acupuncture or they go and have some reflexology or go be hypnotized take this Chinese medicine, all of these things. And I know that um, the people in question were, were very well-meaning. But when I said, 
thank you very much, but no, that's not for me. They, you know, sometimes they would say, oh, no, but you must try it because what if it, what if that's the missing ingredient? And it, and what you don't realize, even though you, you really mean well and you're trying to help, you're actually just piling on more guilt onto the patient, onto the person who's experiencing this. Because first of all, the thought that you will have ha- you will have not considered all of your options or not explored all the possibilities to improve your chances of becoming a parent is really insulting to someone who mm. um, you know who is going through a very very difficult patch. And you know it may well be that you you are seeking advice and looking for advice. In which case, you will do that. You will go and ask if you've got a family friend or a relative who happens to be, you know, a consultant embryologist or a gynecologist. Then I assume you will have tapped them up already to to ask for some advice. But generally, I would say that people who are going through any kind of infertility, if they are talking to a friend or a loved one about their experience. They are not looking for advice. They are just looking for support. And the best thing you can do Mm. is just say, I'm so sorry that you're going through this. I love you. And, you know, whatever you need, I am here. If you just want to talk, if you want to cry, if you want to scream, if you want to get wildly drunk, you know, whatever it is, (laughs) that's, that's cool. That's, I think that's the best advice. Uh. Yeah, because the people who have sent in some questions and some are friends, I know how isolating it can be. And again, bewildering because they're high achievers. You know, these are women who are used to doing well in their careers and their lives. And 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 suddenly they feel quite isolated, quite confused. They don't understand the options they're being offered. So how do they take care of their own mental health? How do they not get stalled in just letting this be the center of their universe. You know, how one one asked, you know, do I move jobs? Do I remodel my house? What do I do while I wait to find out the results of fertility treatment? And obviously wait times are now very long because of COVID and the National Health Service is kind of distracted by other things. So how how do they live their lives and how do they take care of themselves? To anybody listening who's gone through IVF or is going through IVF, how can they take care of themselves? I very much felt that my life was on pause for five, six, seven years. And that was a really painful place to, to, to live in, to exist in. And fortunately, I had my husband sort of living in it with me, if you like. So at least we had each other. But I know a lot of people are going through this, you know, on their own as they're trying to become solo parents or whatever it might be. And the, the best thing I can think that I, I wish I had done is I, I think I wish I'd been a bit kinder to myself. And I don't mean just sort of going off for a massage every now and then, although, you know, if, if that's your thing, then go for it. But um, I, I wish I'd I wish I'd kind of explored the options of moving abroad, maybe, or that I'd felt more comfortable sitting in my failure of not being able to have children and used that as a as a kind of um, uh, something to spur me on in, in another aspect of my life, be it learning the piano or, or, or whatever it would be, you know, something creative, doing something, putting mm-hmm. something back. And instead, I, I felt that I had nothing else to uh, try to achieve other than this becoming a mother. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, so I, my advice would be to the person who said, should I, you know, redecorate my house or should I move abroad? I'd be like, do whatever will make you feel good now. Because you can never, the thing about IVF is that it's, it is out of your control. You might think your treatment's starting next month and then sure enough, your cycle will just be all over the shop and, or, you know, your ovaries aren't playing ball or whatever it will be. And then before you know it, you might be getting to Christmas think, and then thinking, well, hang on a minute, I haven't done anything for the last six months because I was expecting my treatment to start, but then it didn't because of this, that and whatever. So the, the main thing is just do whatever makes you feel good right now without what you know, if, if that means going on a skiing holiday and potentially kind of like falling down a mountain or whatever then then fine you know you can get hit by a bus when you walk out the house you know it's that kind of attitude mm. of, of do whatever you would do in any other circumstance to make you feel good now because it's so good for the soul it's so good for that sort of feeling of nurturing yourself and um, being Mm-hmm. being in tune with what you really need and often that is you know smoking a lot of cigarettes or or drinking a lot of red wine you know a lot of people go through IVF treatment and not only is life on pause in terms of waiting for the treatment to actually take place or to go through it but it will also be things like um you know maybe you should change all of the cleaning products in your house to make sure that everything's chemical free or your makeup should all change as well and everything's expensive so you know the the option of going on holidays is simply out of the question because all of your money is going towards this this treatment but there are i don't know there are things you can do to just be a bit kinder to yourself and if it means you know eating that mm. thing that you know some doctor or some someone said is is not it's not a beetroot and or a Brazil nut, and therefore you you know it's it's out of the question. It's not in your fertility diet. I'd just be like, oh, you know, screw that. Just do whatever makes you feel happy. Yeah, and also let, not letting yourself be defined by this thing that you really have no control over. Yeah, because I think it's so easy to do that because, especially as women, so much of our identity in society is defined by how we succeed at this, and like it or not, it still is. I mean, I'm in my forties. I don't plan to have children, and people still ask me. So are, do you have children yet? And I'm like, no. Mm-hmm. When might you? Uh, maybe never. Also, it's none of your business because you don't know anything about my fertility or anything. So not letting it define you for yourself, even though society might put that on you still, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting you say that about people, strangers sort of saying to you, when are you going to have kids? I already get it. I mean, Sunny is 18, nearly 18 months. I already get the kind of like, oh, you're going to give him a brother or a sister? Oh. And <laughs> I'm like... Um, and I, I turned around to the plumber who said that to me the other week, and I said, um, "No." <laughs> he said, "Oh, you've got, oh, you've got to, you've got to, you've got, you've got to let him have a little brother or a sister." To, I mean, as in, I was denying my son something that this stranger was accusing me of denying my son something, and it, he meant oh. it in the most harmless. It was such a casual conversation, you know. He was, you know, pipe in hand, coming down the stairs, having just fixed the bath or whatever it was, and. It was just, it completely floored me for a second that I just said, do you know what? It took us um, £80,000, seven years and 15 rounds of IVF to make him. So I think we're done. Thanks very much. Awkward moment. Shall I hold the door open for you? (laughs) I don't think that, I don't think he'll be returning anytime soon. I really hope that our plumbing holds out for a bit longer. (laughs) There are many more plumbers in London, but yeah, it's interesting because it is, it's a good point about never assuming you know anything about Absolutely. anything going on in someone else's life, but also to just 
Yeah, take care of yourself. And also the expense, like you brought that up. Mm. How did you navigate the expense of that? Because obviously you get a treatment or a few on the NHS in the UK, but it's prohibitively expensive for a lot of people. So yeah. how did that work for you? Well, so the, on the NHS front, um, theoretically, everyone in the UK is supposed to, up to a certain age, I can't remember what it is, but you're supposed to, the guidelines say you should get three rounds of treatment on the NHS. Um, but that is very, very rare that that is offered by your um, um, clinical commissioning board or whatever it would be, the area that you live in, essentially. It's a postcode lottery. And I was actually speaking to a someone who I haven't, uh, an old colleague from sort of 10, 15 years ago. I was speaking to her this morning because she was asking me about IVF. And um, her partner has grown children from a previous relationship and therefore she is ineligible for treatment on the NHS, even though she pays oh. taxes and has done her whole adult life and all because of her choice of partner and his previous ex experiences in life. So, I, you know, it's it's seriously prohibitive um, what the NHS offers. So in terms of uh, um, the money side of it, we, Lewis and I, were extremely lucky, so, so fortunate to have um, our mums essentially in a position to give us, lend us and give us a lot of money, a lot of the funds towards mm. it. We also, through you know, having sort of well-paid jobs, we were able to put all of our earnings towards it. And like I said, we kind of made sacrifices along the way in terms of you know not going on holidays and not spend not going out for dinners and all that sort of stuff because we were like everything is going into this um baby pot, <laughs> as it were. Wow. Um it's it's something that we are really conscious of though because not most people would not have £80,000 to spare, essentially. It's mm -hmm. just out of reach. And so I, um, you know, every, I look at Sunny and I just think, oh, you've really got to be good. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. No pressure. <laughs> no, no, I'm only joking. I don't, he doesn't have to be good, but he, I mean, he has to be quite good, but not, <laughs> like, <laughs> he doesn't owe me anything, you know. But no, it, it's just out of reach for, for so many people. And, and a round of treatment in the UK, and I think it's much more expensive in the US, for example. Mm. Um, but in the UK, you'd be looking at sort of, I don't know, five to seven grand just for just for the actual treatment. And then drugs are on top of that. And I remember going into ASDA, kind of like, you know, the kind of like, so say the m good value for money supermarket in the UK. And going into the pharmacy there to pick up my prescription. And this was just for one round of treatment. And honestly, the woman behind the counter just looked like she was going to faint because whereas the the, pre the the guy in front of me had picked up his vitamins or whatever it was and spent you know 15 quid or something like that my bill was 1500 oh. and I don't think she'd ever told it up before like that kind of money up before and so I was just handed over the credit card I was like yeah you know that's all right I was expecting that and she she was visibly shaking <laughs> I was like no, no this is probably about the fourth time I've been in here doing this um, but it God. is an incredible amount of money and it is in a way a bit of a racket, you know, the, the mm. fact that, that there are all of the, there is this big private system out there that essentially preys on the vulnerable. I mean, and that's a really mm -hmm. stark and quite grotesque way of describing it, but that's what it feels like when you're in it because mm -hmm. you're constantly, any consultation you have with any private clinician will be 
I don't know, £250 just to sit down and tell your horror story to that person, which is harrowing enough in itself because you're having to relive it again to another person who's ultimately probably going to say, hmm, it seems like you have unexplained infertility, which is the least helpful thing that anyone in any kind of position of medical authority should ever say to anyone. Um, But, you know, so you you, you basically, you're hemorrhaging cash left, right and centre. And um, and that's just a, something that you have to kind of accept early on. And it was very difficult for Lewis because the one area, given the fact that he wasn't having to go through the injections and things, um, the one area he felt he could have a bit of maybe control over was the the, the, fin- the finances. And mm. because he wasn't with me for every single appointment that I went to over the years, uh, often it would be kind of you know, oh, I spent 250 quid today on this or 500 pounds on that. Or I said yes to that add-on treatment, which is 1500. And, you know, we were talking about it. It was like planning a wedding, you know, but none of it fun. (laughs) You know, just constantly kind of talking about more sums of money. So I I sympathize hugely with anyone having to um, navigate the private system because there is so much on offer. There are so many people practicing it's impossible to, you know, it feels like such an enormous ocean of offerings in terms of diff- which clinic should I go to? Who should I speak to? Should I have this particular ultrasound done? Mm. There are so many different options because it's still so new. It's only kind of 40, 40 odd years, this science that it's only been around 40 years, which is amazing. Wow. Yeah. And so uh, it's it's a real minefield when you have to get in there for the first time. Mm. And it's also worth mentioning, you said 40 years, and that made me think about the age at which you started this, because it wasn't like you were a, quote, geriatric mother who was like 40. This was in your early 30s. Yeah, right. So I think we started trying to conceive. I I was trying to work this out earlier, actually. I think I was probably about 33, something like Mm. that, when we first started trying for a baby. Um, And then first IVF was must have been at 34. And Sonny was born when I was uh, 38, nearly 39. Mm. So, um, yeah, yeah, it's uh, I wasn't a a geriatric. I mean, by the time I actually had the baby, I was very much, you know, it was on my on my file, my hospital file, geriatric mother to be. <laughs> yeah, people might not be aware of that. At what age do they start classifying you as a geriatric mom? And they they sort of scare the bejesus out of you about yeah. your high risk pregnancy because you're like 36 or something. It's I crazy. think it's something like that. I mean, there is some there is some truth in it, as brutal as it sounds. Um, for those people who are kind of listening, who are maybe like 30 in their mid 30s. You're, you know, they, they do say that your fertility kind of falls off a cliff at 35. And I used to think that that was something just really, you know, a random kind of d- age that people threw out there and it didn't mean anything. But mine mm. really did. The difference mm. between 34 and 35 in terms of my AMH, which is your essentially your egg reserve, how many eggs? Because all women are, for people who don't know, everyone's born with a certain stock number of eggs. And then obviously, yeah. as you start having your periods, then you're just shedding those eggs and your reserve is going down every month and when you get to 35 it really does fall off a cliff and I don't know if it was just a me thing but it stuck with me because I'd heard about this age 35 so mine went from being super super high to yeah just it just depleted massively seemingly overnight so um so yeah something to think about if anyone's thinking of like I don't know freezing eggs or 
or whatever. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, we, you know, everyone should be having their babies in their twenties. You know, that's that's the the healthiest time to do it. But it's just not really in keeping with how to be a mm. modern woman who has a career and has a you know multifaceted life and all that. Oh, that brings me up to a question we haven't really dealt with before, like this. But yeah, modern womanhood. How do you navigate if you want to have a child? If you do have a career? If you do? want to take your time or you haven't met the right person yet if you want to have kids with somebody or like how do you navigate that and how different is the world for women than men still especially in media so yeah how do you have it all can you just try to do it all well I think a very good friend of mine said that she her mum told her when she was pregnant with her first daughter she said um you know, you're going to have to choose. You can't have it all. And she was like, but I want to have it all. Like, I don't, I don't think that that's true. I, and this was a kind of in the, mm. would this have been kind of 10 years ago or something like that. I think in the last 10 years, maybe things have changed quite a bit. And that, you know, through the kind of like power suit 90s, 80s, 90s, these sort of powerful women kind of decades, um, it was considered that, you know, yes, I can have it all. I can, you know, that that's fine. And then actually you realize that, no, you can't, but that's okay. It doesn't matter. Yeah. It's not that you need to have it all to shoot, to prove your worthiness as a woman or as a human being. Mm. It's actually just prioritizing what you want and when, and it's just getting the balance right. And that will change from kind of decade to decade or year to year. Yeah relationship to relationship you know we are always constantly evolving in our personalities and in our needs and our geographies just in our you know physical locations of where we are and I think um you know in hindsight I wish that Lewis and I had got together in our you know when we first met back in our early 20s I wish that we'd been um, sort of had the foresight to go, oh, we might have fertility issues later on. Wouldn't it be great if we just got on with it now? Um, <laughs> it's totally what you're taking, thinking about when you're 25. No, yeah. I don't know. I mean, yeah. maybe it would have been um, more straightforward. Who knows? But then maybe we wouldn't have had the career trajectories and career paths that we've had. Mm. And I went through a bit of a through sort of maternity leave. I was thinking, how am I going to get back to me again or what, what what am I now and instead of trying to go back to pre-motherhood I was like no this is just another layer this is motherhood is now a part of who I am so yeah. I, I'm, I can't go back to a career I have to kind of go forward to the next career which is why I'm kind of moving now into passion projects that I'm most interested mm. in things like international development and and also like SRH, sexual reproductive health rights across the world. I, I'm I'm reading a lot about it and learning a lot about that as well. Having experienced infertility in the UK, I mean, what an enormously privileged position I've been in, not just because of the financial side of it that we've discussed, but also, you know, I am a white, educated, privileged woman. And, mm -hmm. uh, and, and, there are so many people in a far, far worse situation who have the exact same desperate desire to become a parent, um, and they're just they don't have the same uh, resources available to them that 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 I had as well. Mm. So I don't know how I got onto international development there, but anyway, I'm sure there was a. Little I loved bit. it. No, it was good. <laughs> well, it was kind of like it's not seeing motherhood as a layby for your career, and right. actually sort of embracing. Modern womanhood isn't about mm, leaning in. I fucking hated that book. I'm just going to say it. I liked it for a minute and I woke up the next morning and then was like, 
fuck that. I don't want to have to lean in because it still brings this, you still have to kind of navigate in a very, I would say, masculine way, in very masculine systems that make success very much about achievement and earning and you have to hit this peak of your earnings by the time you're 45 or, uh oh, you've missed it. Because what I came to and what I am coming to even more is that an awful lot of people need to lean out. Yeah. Lean Good back. Good men need to lean back and, yeah, make space for other leadership styles, other ways of being and navigating the world that allow for parents, not just women, to spend time with their kids mm -hmm. and not be unsuccessful because they're not at work all the time because they have kids and things like that. So I, I think it's not that you can have it all. You have to change the system and also have what matters, what really matters. Exactly. Right? Just get your priorities straight and also respect and have a bit of love and faith in who you are already are because you're already a good enough person you're already deserving to be on that stage in that meeting you know on that phone call whatever it is have a bit of faith in yourself and it doesn't mean that you have to be an extrovert or a brilliant presenter or whatever it might be you know if you're an introvert if you're really shy there is a huge quality in that and i think we always see these things as being really negative it's just like oh she's really shy well, that's great i mean like that mm. means that you're you're probably a brilliant listener. You're probably really, really hyper aware of in social circumstances. Um, you'll get nuance in the way that other people just don't. And I just think it's such a shame that that people. Well, I think it's a shame that people haven't noticed the value in them in their personality intricacies uh, to date. And I hope that we're kind of moving into that realm of, you know, lean back, lean out. You don't have to lean in. I thought Sheryl Sandberg's book in her time, in that time, <laughs> I loved it personally. I was like, yeah, I'm going to lean into this and lean into my career. But I get what you're saying. And I suppose now I would say it was, it was um, you know, good and valuable at the time. But now it's just it doesn't fit with today's culture and the, and the pace of life. And actually, we need to lean back and accept that it takes all types and it takes all sorts and we should yeah. just be more accepting of that. You don't have to be the loudest. You don't have to be the proudest. Sometimes you can be a little bit meek and that's okay. Mm, I posted an article on LinkedIn a couple of weeks back that got like 6,000 views and it was about actually watching the quiet people in meetings and valuing the quiet people in meetings because often they're the ones absorbing all the detail and when they finally do talk, you really want to listen. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think there's, and, and actually last week I gave the same speech twice that involved talking about coming to a more balanced view of leadership, of feminine qualities. And I need to find better terms for it than just masculine feminine because it's quite polarizing. But just intuitive and nurturing and listening and being able to be still and not always have to sort of be doing or achieving or bossing people around. So that balanced toolkit that everybody needs as a leader, but also in their lives, because not everyone can be on all the time. So it actually makes me wonder about what it's like to be entering, getting back into work from maternity leave, because what you've said about, you know, coming back to it very differently, but also how do you find the world of work still works for women versus men? Because you and your husband are in the same profession. You're both journalists. So yeah. how is it different for you? It's been really different. Um, in many ways, I mean, Lewis and I are not only in the same prof profession as journalists, but we're actually in the have been in the exact same uh, job. So he's a news anchor for the BBC, and I've been a news anchor for CNN, and I was up until I went on maternity leave. And I, I, I'm we're both sort of freelance, so 
essentially kind of like not contracted to these uh, big organizations. But Lewis is obviously still doing that. And um, I haven't gone back to CNN since having Sunny. And instead, I've kind of found myself doing other broadcasting things like you know, pod, a bit of podcasting, um, po- podcast hosting, not just sort of this sort of thing. Um, and and uh, lots of moderating events and interviewing leaders and all this sort of stuff, which has been really interesting and valuable, but just different. And my, it was really uncomfortable for me at first because not only was I physically changed, having had a baby, I was kind of like heavier than, I've, you know, I still am heavier than I have ever been. And, um, you know, feeling a bit sort of self-conscious about what I, the difference in my own body, but also I'm suddenly now not uh, not as visible to other people. I was like, how do I, how do I sort of have worth? What is my professional worth when I'm not on screen doing my job, which I, which I've always done, and I hope I've always done well. Like, what am I? Like, what, what is my offering? And it's, it's taken me a really long time, and I'm still kind of working through it now. But, um. It's it's hard when you watch your husband go off to go and do the job that you've always done, and he's you know bloody good at it as well. And you just think, oh God, you know that's in my past. But again, I think mm. you know I, I'm not saying I'll never broadcast again or you know read, be a newsreader again. Maybe I will, and I'd love to sort of dip, dip my toe back into that kind of world again down the line. I, to be honest, I'm a little bit Brexited out and COVIDed out. <laughs> Aren't we all? Yeah. It's not the right kind of time for me to be sort of diving back into that at the moment anyway, because I don't think my mental health could handle it. But um <laughs> yeah. but it's 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 I kinda it's it's being okay with having this sort of like multifaceted approach to a career. And I I you know, mm-hmm. it's a portfolio career that I'm exploring now. So being able to do some broadcasting, being able to do some moderating and some hosting doing uh, communications advisory as well and working on these kind of like, you know, really significant um, development projects. Um, Things that are just, you know, fascinating to me. And I never would have had the chance to do it before. And it also means that, you know, my main job in life, certainly for the next, you know, whatever it is, 18 years, is raising another human and Mm -hmm. trying to make him the, 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 the best version that he can possibly be of him, you know, the best version of himself, the happiest, the healthiest, the kindest. My mother-in-law um, added to this list because I said, all I want for him is to be happy, healthy, and kind. And she said, also creative and flexible. And I thought that was really, really powerful. And I know you you posted mm. something about creativity recently. And, yeah. um, and my last guest, yeah, we talked about creativity. Yeah. So I think it's just it's such an important attribute and a thing to hold on to. And my job, I think, yes, I can go off and do all these other portfolio things. But my, my main job as a mum, raising mm-hmm. another person, is to try and give him the tools to be as creative and flexible as possible. Creative because what an amazing gift to be able to kind of, you know, whatever it is, even if it's just cooking a meal or something like that, it doesn't have to be kind of like painting some beautiful thing. But you know, being able to put something back into the world I think is a gorgeous thing however small or seemingly insignificant and flexible because life never or rarely goes to plan and if you're so used to um, you know staying the course and having a kind of a whole schedule of, of, of an itinerary planned out and suddenly you know a curveball comes and you can't handle it 
you're really going to be screwed later later in life because those curveballs are going to come at some point. Uh, COVID, Brexit. Exactly. <laughs> Name a few more. Yeah, it's just life. It's part of resilience, isn't it? Yeah. Being able to be creative and flexible is about resilience and how you deal with the curveballs. Yeah, exactly. I think flexibility, mm. I'd never really thought of it in that sense. Uh, you know, maybe it's because it's always on a poster, isn't it? Like happy, healthy, kind. <laughs> um, but I was like, I yeah. do think that creativity... To be creative and flexible should be added to that list. Um, and I'm definitely, that's my my main mission in life in now in terms of what my purpose is, is to make sure that, he, that that's instilled in him, that he should be creative and flexible. But also what an amazing opportunity to raise a good man. You yeah. know, you've got this little boy and raising him to understand the world maybe differently than, you know, we were raised in the 80s and 90s. And mm -hmm. the world has changed so much and there's so much opportunity and so much challenge. But what an exciting time, you know, like the issues you've reported on, the issues you focus on, the issues I focus on, they're big, big issues. And we need we need these beautiful little people coming yeah. up to be part of seeing the world differently and creating amazing, innovative solutions that we wouldn't be able to think about because we're still so much part of the old systems in our own ways. Totally. And everyone's so woke these days, aren't they? Which I think is great mm. in lots of ways. But, you know, he, ultimately, Sonny will um, grow up, I, I'm sure, knowing that he is hugely privileged in his family background and social kind of the, the life society that he's been born into. But yeah, and he's, you know, he's a white man. So, you know, that should be an advantage in lots of ways. But actually, interestingly, Lewis said this to me, and maybe it's because he works for the BBC or something, and everything's so kind of, um, you know, woke and sort of all about diversity at the moment and ticking all these diversity boxes. Mm. Um, but he said, I'm really worried about Sonny because he's a white man. No one wants to employ a white man at the moment. And I just thought it was such a funny kind of like weird twist of kind of circumstance because mm. five years ago or something like that, like, what, you know, well, and for however many, you know, thousands of years, white man, it's been like, well, obviously you're, you're absolutely top of the food set. chain. Top of the yeah, food chain. Totally. Yeah. Whereas now it's just like, oh no, he might be really disadvantaged. <laughs> Which is fascinating. I can't wait to sort of revisit that whole conversation in another year or two years and see because yeah, with all the attention on diversity and inclusion, it's like climate change. There are a lot of places that will do it based on a list, and it it diminishes everyone to their gender identity or mm -hmm. their color. And we both get equity in the idea that there needs to be some, well, there needs to be a lot of readjustment of systems. Absolutely. But it is interesting to see, I think naturally as humans, we do that pendulum swing from one extreme to the other. don't I mean, you see it in every U.S. presidential election. Yeah. Basically. People go from one extreme to the other. So I think now what's called for, what's needed is, yeah, a really wise approach that is truly inclusive of people based on skills, but recognizes when they haven't had access to get those skills in the first place. But it must be interesting to be raising, yeah, a, a beautiful, very white, privileged boy in a world that's really changing and somehow... Well, we're already talking about education i mean he's one you know but mm. we're already starting to think about it and and lewis was educated in the state system and i was educated privately and my parents paid essentially to give me mm. a, a significant advantage in life which i'm i'm grateful for in a huge number of ways because it got me to various points in my life but at the same time i'm very conscious of the fact that um that 
because they were financially able, I have potentially a, a different life to someone who lived like around the corner from me. And that's, yeah. it, it doesn't sit well with me at all. But then, you know, it's that kind of like, what do we do? Like, what's our, the best thing to do for our son? Um, obviously, we want to give him the best opportunity in life, because that's what every parent wants to do. But, you know, ultimately, I can't help but feel, feel that there needs to be some equality of opportunity at source at the start. Mm. Because, you know, life should be about the, the the content of your character and the attributes that you bring and the, the certain skill sets. And everyone's got their own skills and they're all different. And again, that introvert, extrovert, shyness, whatever it yeah. is, there's a skill and a talent and of something beautiful in, in, in everything that everyone has. Um, but, you know, but should we be paying for him to have, uh, for Sonny to have an advantage? I don't know. I maybe because I don't want him to turn around in twenty years' time and say, "Well, you you know you you could have afforded it, but you didn't." What you decided that I wasn't worth it <laughs> or something? Um, well, you're like, do you know how much it costs to conceive you? <laughs> Can always be your answer. But yeah, that must be really tricky as a parent who, like, you know. You have these beliefs, but then at the same time, you're like, I exist in a system in which I could pay to have my child be advantaged or kind of feel like maybe I'm failing them. I'm failing them as a parent. Yeah, I know so many people who've grappled with this. Yeah. It's a tricky one, which all you can do is navigate it as gracefully as you can while also working on the systemic adjustments that need to happen that do give advantage to people who can afford it and yeah. just leave others out. So, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of like I'm not a fan of quotas. Um, I, I just find, I find it really limiting in terms, just from a management point of view, when you have managers who are recruiting and they already have it in their mind that they have to have, you know, mm. um, 70% women applicants or whatever it is, or black, Asian, minority, ethnic, whatever yeah. it might be. I find that really, um, I just find it a real shame that we're at that point. I know that they're necessary in lots of ways. And actually to do, um, to get it wrong or to have a bad system now actually might yeah. mean that we get to a better system sooner down the line. So I, I understand, yeah. the, of course, the principles behind it. I just think it's a, it's a real shame and that every generation that goes through this kind of a societal cultural shift, you know, there are always going to be people who suffer as a result of it mm. um and that's not to say that i'm worried about my you know privileged white son kind of suffering as a result <laughs> of anything pretty but sure I, he'll do just fine but yeah, yeah i think he'll be okay yeah exactly it's it, i just think it's a shame that we can't judge people on uh, on merit essentially yeah. when it comes to we're not employment. there yet i guess it's part of and i think the quota one was an interesting conversation if it's part of a journey it's a necessary part of the journey but if that's the policy and people are like good we've done we've done it we fixed inequality you're just like no that's a sticking plaster on a rotten system that has advantaged people and disadvantaged yeah so it's i hope it's part of a journey but i think that will take constant attention going forward but i i don't know so what do you want to leave people with we have ranged widely <laughs> we've talked about success as a woman about defining yourself as not just somebody doing ivf or not just a mother but also as like having this great beautiful responsibility to be a mom and to raise someone great in the world or just raise him to be him, whatever that is. So what do you want to leave people with from all of this? Oh, gosh. I didn't warn you about that one. No, I uh -huh. wasn't expecting that. What do I want to leave people with? I think um, I, 
I hope that people maybe can hear that I'm going through a bit of a journey myself. Uh, it's a bit of a journey of discovery. I'm not all that comfortable with all of the things that I've even said today um, because I, I, I want to believe it. Um, I'm just not always 100% there. And of course, that changes from day to day and wherever I am in my cycle as well. <laughs> you know? um, it, it's, it's a constantly moving feast. Um, but I suppose I would like people to know that I'm happy, that uh, I feel very, very lucky to have my baby, to have my husband, to have my family, um, because that's what I wanted. And I, I am one of the lucky ones in that I got what I wanted in the end. And um, I, you know, there's not a day that goes by that I don't acknowledge that and feel extremely grateful. And I hope that that softened me to other challenges in life, that, that sort of attitude of whatever it is, you can get through it or work your way through it, even if it's a life-threatening um, illness. You know, your life might end, but you, you you can find a way to make that a valuable experience, I suppose, going through it. I mean, that sounds really dark and I don't mean it to be dark and I'm not, you know, touch wood and there's nothing wrong with me at the moment. But um, I just think that life's so short and without meaning to go too deep and meaningful, life is really short. You never know what's coming around the corner. And so just I, I want to kind of try and make the most of now and especially having gone through the pandemic, as we all have over the last 18 months or so, you know, there's there's nothing more valuable, valuable to me now than being in the company and in the grip of the people that I love. And for a long time through infertility, I pushed people away because I needed to do, to do that for me and I had to sort of work my way through it and I'm now desperate to to hug and grip and snog people and just <laughs> hold them just really random now. <laughs> yeah um I love that this whole this whole story and this getting to know you much better through three rounds of this interview <laughs> has been just a really beautiful kind of revisiting over and over again how much of a gift it can be to yourself and to the world to not be perfect and to accept it. Yeah. And that that actually gives you much greater resilience, flexibility, and strength. Mm -hmm. And I think that to me is what really stands out about you. And that really inspires me because, you know, you are glossy and perfect and well presented. That's how I've always known you. But to be able to get to know this vulnerable part of you has just been such a beautiful gift to get to know this this different Hannah, you know, Hannah who mm -hmm. swears and admits she has flaws and has worked really hard at things that she failed at. And, you know, we fucking failed at this podcast a few times, but <laughs> we still don't know if this one's going to work. <laughs> it's just, I don't know, we're going to stay on, you're going to hear us as we sort of count down and make sure that it's filled, <laughs> that it's properly recorded this time. But I just wanted to thank you. Thank you for your vulnerability, for your humor, for opening up about things that a lot of people wouldn't expect from, you know, you can Google Han. She's on, she's on the Google. You can watch her on TV. So to have somebody who has such a public persona be so open is just really a treat. It's really refreshing. And I hope people take from that, that, you know, this is about each of us being ourselves in this life. And that's the best way to be because vulnerability welcomes vulnerability. So thank you for being vulnerable. 
Thank you so much. Thank you for giving me the space to to be able to be comfortable enough in my discomfort. <laughs> I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. All right, we're going to press stop now. And people, if you're listening to this, it means it has recorded and we are probably both having a beer to celebrate. Fingers so, crossed. I know. Enjoy. <laughs> Thank you to my team who helped me produce this podcast, to my brilliant editor, Dimitar Tvedkov, to Thomas Sheffer for the original music, and to Luis Amaro for the original artwork. If you enjoy this podcast, you can help me reach new listeners by leaving me a five-star and written review on Apple Podcasts, following me on Spotify, or anywhere else you love to listen to podcasts. You can also follow me on Instagram at the Betsy Reed. That's B-E-T-S-Y-R-E-E-D. If you're interested in bonus episodes and guided meditations I record regularly, head over to patreon.com and become a supporter. For the price of a coffee each month, you get access to a community. So there's really only one thing left to say. Thank you for spending time with me. Stay uncomfortable.